Okay, so here we are in the wonderful land of 1960. The Silver Age starts to take shape. Superheroes assert their dominance at DC. Marvel keeps on monstering through the industry. And Charlton decides to dabble in a little bit of both. And that leads us to this week's Comic Book Historian Podcast with my partner in crime, Alex Grand. I'm Bill Field. Alex, how are you this week? I'm good. I just saw Venom last night, and that was just a, a fun dark comedy romp, is what I call it. Kind of put the movie Alien and mix it with some WWF 80 style, and you got yourself Venom. I had a good time. Are we talking Sting, like a post-Crow era, or are we talking a little of that with a little of that? I'm thinking more like Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant era of WWF. That's what I would say. So when they had a cartoon series called WrestleMania or something like that, never mind. Uh, <laughs> that was the golden age of wrestling. That's right. That's the good old days, man. And me, I've just been being Bill Field, getting through life and doing what I think I can do. But I have to tell you, I'm really enjoying The Gifted. Yeah, season two, the first three episodes have come out, and it's a fun show. I like it. It's exciting now. You have a real yin and yang of the whole mutant brotherhood underground and anything in between. So, okay, Alex, let's get into the heart of this podcast. And I guess we should start at DC Comics. Now, due to the significant success of the revamped Silver Age Green Lantern in Showcase 22, 1959, he gets his own comic in 1960. Yeah. Let's go into that a little bit. What do you know about this? Green Lantern was revamped. Of course, there was the Golden Age Green Lantern from the early 40s. So this was the new Hal Jordan Green Lantern in Showcase 22, 23, and 24. So there's three comics in a row. And then he finally gets his own comic in 1960 under editor Julia Schwartz. And he appointed writer John Broom and artist Gil Kane with Joe Giella as the inker. And Schwartz is showing here in 1960 that he has a consistent formula. He's approaching his stories with a science fiction approach that seems to be working and can still sell a lot of books under the restricted form of the Comics Code Authority. He had already created The Flash in 1956. That was also another revamped Golden Age character, and this was now the Green Lantern. He had a much more sleek outfit, much more like that later 50s convertible kind of look. He also had little more of a mythology to him, more consistent with a space force. This is something that he would kind of do with Hawkman, kind of turn Hawkman into also kind of a space cop from his own planet. What was interesting about the Green Lantern is there was a lot of that gray lensman pulp sci-fi mythos that was then imbued into Green Lanterns. He really started off just an intergalactic story and that this one guy, Hal Jordan, uh, Earth is just his district in this large intergalactic story. So it was a really fun, hard-hitting, sci-fi, Silver Age book. You're basically saying he's a super-powered beat cop. That's it. That's what he is. I totally buy that. That's okay. It's funny. Going back, I was lucky enough to meet Gil Kane on at least three occasions, maybe more. I can't remember in my chronic old age. Gil was a wonderful guy. He was a fantastic illustrator. I don't know if you remember this, Alex, but I believe in 1988-89, he basically went to Ruby Spears and created an entire Superman TV series, which completely screamed Gil Kane. I don't know if you remember that as a kid. No, I love the Ruby Spears Superman. I showed that to my son recently. Actually, that got him into Superman. Oh, that's great. And as a comic aficionado, as you are an historian, I'm sure on like hindsight, you can tell it's totally Gil Kane because the whole way Superman looks and everything, it's very Gil Kane-ish. In opposition to that, in a way, Super Friends has that Alex Toth kind of look to it, whereas this almost more action-adventure anatomical look from Gil Kane, that seems more evident in the Ruby Spear Superman. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Not to uh, sell Gil short in any way, his Green Lantern stuff seems to still be held as the precipice of his career, don't you think? You know, that's interesting. I think that if you look at his 
1959, 1960, and then 60s artwork with Green Lantern, yeah, everyone definitely considers that his definitive Gil Kane Silver Age work. He did have inkers that would subdue somewhat of the chaotic action that he enjoyed putting into his work, which is why it's in such stark contrast to his early 70s Marvel stuff, where they just kind of let him go balls to the wall and jump off the page. I like those Green Lantern issues. You know, issue number one is interesting as far as that 24-hour power charge for the Green Lantern ring. That's actually a central plot point in one of the stories in issue one. And what's really interesting is Marvel later would use that with Iron Man, where his armor would run out of batteries and that time limit would add extra stress to the character. So this was a really interesting precursor, I think, to the Iron Man running low on battery kind of storyline that would come up a lot later. That actually came up even in the first Iron Man movie where he was fighting the Ironmonger. He was running low on battery. He had like one more hit left or something. So that was pretty cool from the first Green Lantern issue. And here's another thing. The second story in Green Lantern 1, he was fighting a character that had a hypno-ray that would mesmerize masses of people into acting irregularly. Guess what that character's name was? I'm just going to guess the Ringmaster. It was the Puppet Master. Kirby and Lee would use that name for a villain in 1962, which I thought is interesting. So DC then changes the name of Puppet Master later on to the Puppeteer. Right. And so Marvel got to keep that name for the villain. Right, but the Hypno Ray goes all the way back to the Ringmaster in the original Golden Age Captain America by Kirby and Simon. With the hypnotizing spinning swastika in his hat. Right. And then it's not a swastika, but a strange spiral in the Silver Age. Right. In the Silver Age, it was not a swastika. In the Golden Age, it was. Of course it was. World War II. (laughs) But I want to go back real quick because what you said about the first story. Yeah. With the uh, time limit. Actually, if you think about it, DC started that entire craze in 1940-41 with Our Man, who his powers came from a pill, and he was always up against the 60-minute limit. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm saying it, it kind of feeds into this, and not only that, but a lot of the same creatives from the Golden Age were still hanging around DC in the Silver Age, so... I'm not surprised that that time limit became Green Lantern canon. Right. And it's also kind of a New York thing probably too, right? In New York, everyone's always in a rush. There's not enough time in the day. Yeah, I never even thought about that. And whereas if these stories started in the beach in California, there'd be all the time in the world. Hey, man. Hey, take your time. Iron Man becomes Day Man. (laughs) Goes from one hour to 24 hours. That's right. Hey, I got all day. I got all day. What are you talking about? Yeah, I definitely think that, like, just being in New York, the hustle and bustle, I think that adds a little element to those stories. So don't you think it's kind of funny that we go from wood to yellow as being the kryptonite for Green Lantern? That's right. It was wood in the Golden Age, and it was the color yellow. In the Silver Age. I mean, again, these are kind of silly little things, but you know, you got to add some kryptonite of some kind to these characters because they're just walking powerhouses. I'm sure, as crazy as your mind goes, you've thought about this, but if you ever wanted to defeat Green Lantern, couldn't you just pee on him? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying, Alec. That's not a hard color to come up with. I mean, you're saying that the Golden Shower is the way to really get. Green Lantern, really just knock him down silly. Bill, you may be onto something there. We're evil. But uh, you finally rubbed off on me. Not literally, folks, not literally. No, 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 no. We're states apart. So Green Lantern definitely coming up into the Silver Age superhero lexicon. That's definitely solidifying in 1960. The next character that would then solidify... His role as a Silver Age superhero in this year was Aquaman. He got his own title in Showcase 30, 1960. He stopped being a backup title. His issue was written by Jack Miller with art by Ramona Fredon. Do you like Ramona Fredon's art, Bill? 
I love Ramona. Ramona was very much in the style of a strip she would take on later, which would be Brenda Starr. She was one of the first women in the industry, and she had huge sway on the way characters were depicted, and she's completely underrated in my eyes. But if you remember, she took on the uh, Super Friends title, and a lot of people know her as the uh, illustrator for Super Friends, actually in the mid-70s to the early 80s. She was fantastic, and she's still alive, by the way. But yeah, her Aquaman, I always thought her artwork looked a lot like Kurt Schaffenberger. She had this really wide-open, alive appeal to me. She brought Aquaman to life. Then so many other artists took it on, including Neil Adams, of course, who we met and interviewed. But no, Ramona remains on top for me as far as Silver Age artists. How about you? Oh, yeah. I love her stuff. She did dabble a little bit with Marvel in the 70s. She was revamping or about to revamp Hellcat's costume. It was going to be a little more stripper-ish, actually. I don't know if you've seen the sketches of that, but... Um, Yes, I have, and they, they are quite provocative. Yeah, it's more provocative than the initial, you know, Wally Wood design. Right. But, um, yeah, I like her stuff, uh, especially her Silver Age stuff. There's more of a buoyancy to it. It's a little more of a, like this fun cartoon style. It feels like it breathes a lot. There's a lot of space and a lot of action yeah. and a lot of bounce, a lot of bounce but in it. But a lot of which, light. Uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of life. It's a lot of brightness. So it's it's fun stuff. You know that Aquaman's issue of Showcase 30? Aquaman and Aqualad, they fight off interdimensional undersea amphibians, and they save his home city of Atlantis, also Submariner's town's name. And this adventure shows that he can have his own book and story that under two-thirds of the planet Earth, under the ocean... There's plenty of action to go around to fund storylines and plots for his own comic. Also, to take it a step further, it's the success of this Aquaman, Aqualad stories and adventures. They generate their own cartoon in 1967 by Filmation. That's also, I think, the success from that is why he was added into the very first season of Super Friends, why Aquaman was part of that team. So I think 1960 is important as far as Aquaman solidifying his role in the DC superhero list. And I actually have to uh, credit Ted Knight with that, because if you remember from our last episode, Ted Knight was the narrator of Super Friends, but Ted Knight was also the narrator of Batman... Superman, and Aquaman at Filmation. Oh, yeah? I'm pretty convinced that Aquaman has Ted Baxter, a.k.a. Ted Knight, to thank for that. Oh, and yeah. I'd like to thank everyone at Aquaman for this. Sorry, I just had to do a little Ted Knight there. Yeah, I love Ted Knight. He actually died in 1986, so yep. not that far after Caddyshack. And he died at the age of 62 of colorectal cancer. So a bummer. I thought he was a terrific performer. I loved his narrations in those superhero cartoons as well. He was fantastic. You know, if anyone ever has time, they should get a drink in honor of Ted Knight. I definitely think the Ted Knight factor had something to do with it in a weird way. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm a big Ted Knight fan. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that theory, Bill. Thank you, bro. Enough of these theories today and conspiracies, Alex. Uh, but guess what this bled into? The formation of the Justice League of America. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. Because as Green Lantern ascends, there were other characters that were brought back or revamped during the 1950s before this. You had Flash in Showcase 4 in 1956. We know about that. We have Martian Manhunter in Detective Comics 225. That was 1955. Wonder Woman was revamped in 1958 in issue 98 because Bob Kaniger replaced the original Wonder Woman artist, H.G. Peter, with Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito. And why does this matter? Well, it's because that with Aquaman in Showcase and Green Lantern in Showcase, these characters... Flash, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman all combine, kind of like in the Avengers movie, they all combine in 1960 in Brave and the Bold 28, 29, and 30. This was the first assembled Justice League of America, a modernized Silver Age version of the Golden Age Justice Society of America under editor Julius Schwartz. And who was the character they fought in their first adventure? Starro? 
Starro, yeah. So uh, what better way for Julius Schwartz, the editor, to assemble them other than a sci-fi galactic threat? And that's what he did. He got a big alien from outer space. A hypnotic starfish, no, no less. A big starfish from outer space. There you go. What better excuse for those five characters, those five superheroes from their own books, to assemble and fight off the intergalactic threat? I mean, that's what the first Avengers movie pretty much was. It's that same skeleton bone structure, and that was all Julia Schwartz. Well, and strangely enough, we'll get to Superman Annual number 1 from 1960 in just a little bit, but we have to knock out the fact that this would come back 10 annuals later to annual number 11 in 1985, I believe, with a story by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, where Superman opens a birthday package, and surprise, it's Starro, and suddenly you're back in Krypton, and hey, you never left. Do you remember that story, Alex? Yeah, that's a good one. They recreated that for, I think, one of the Bruce Tim Justice yes. League episodes. Mongol was in it. The deliverer of the package. I do like that story a lot. Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, of course, made Watchmen together. So yeah, that was a definitely a really good story. It really did bring Superman's past and his identity and the temptation of being homesick, all that to the forefront. That was a good story. It, it was fantastic. But all goes back to... The beginning of the Justice League. Yeah, and the introduction of Starro. You mentioned this last week. But the assembly of five superheroes, each one carrying their own comic, into a combined book where they're all there for the price of one comic book gave kids that feeling that there was more bang for their buck, right? Exactly. They weren't getting just one hero. They were getting five for that same right. 10 cents at the time. Right. The difference, though, I would say would be the art. The writing was probably pretty similar. Gardner Fox was the writer. Mike Sikowski is the artist. And not everyone likes Mike Sikowski. I like his art, especially there are certain key issues where I think he's just real classic. But I notice not everyone is a fan. Well, all of his characters, to me, always look like sweaty Nixons. And I don't know why, and I don't know <laughs> why. I mean, it's just weird. They all look like middle-aged dudes that were, like, freaking out. And But I like Mike Sikowski, don't get me wrong. And Dick Dillon did the same thing in the same comic. It was kind of weird. It was like always these frantic white guys sweating like, you know, balls. It was always hilarious, but you always had this manic kind of frantic energy to those comics. That's funny. Mike Sikowski did a frantic comic. It was the speedster for those Wallywood Dynamo Thunder Agent stories. And Mike Sikowski did actually introduce some of that energy into that speedster story. He was a fantastic illustrator. He really was. I like those stories. He seemed to be kind of in a ditch creatively for about a, a decade where everything looked the same. And then he lifted himself up, but Sikowski upped his game and kept his career alive for about another 15 years. So DC was not exactly a mill of spontaneous creativity and crossing boundaries. It wasn't really like that. They were under a pretty strict editorial compartments. Uh, There's a lot of status quo going on, that, which is why it's a miracle that Schwartz was able to create so much of this Silver Age hubbub that DC's still milking even now. And I want you to go in a little bit to detail for uh, why there was an absence of Batman and Superman in those early JLA issues. When you look at JLA 1, 1960, where now the team, the Silver Age superhero team, has ascended into its own superhero unit in that first issue of 1960, which again is part of this whole thing of the Silver Age taking shape, especially over at DC Comics, we find that Superman and Batman are notoriously absent or maybe hidden in some of those issues where you might just see like one of their feet or something. And the main reason is because Mort Weisinger, who was the editor of Superman, and Jack Schiff, the editor of Batman, very territorial over those two characters. And they didn't like the idea of Julia Schwartz just kind of using their characters as just one of many pieces in Julius Schwartz's book. So you didn't actually see them much. That actually is a segue, I think, for us talking about Superman in 1960. And what issue came out in 1960, Bill, that 
Suitman is known for in this year? Well, I'm going to guess that you're talking about Superman Annual 1. That's right. And this was reprinted from various 1950s, like you said before in conversation, of some of Mort Weisinger's greatest hits, like Lois Lane Number 1, The First Supergirl Appearance, Jimmy Olsen. This was basically summing up a lot of those 1950s stories into a composite book for 1960, saying, okay, in 1960, here's where we are now. If you want to get what Superman's all about right now, read this book. And it was a successful book. A lot of people wanted this giant annual book. And I think it actually inspired the industry to make their famous 80-page giants, which they're still making even now. And probably inspired Marvel to do their annuals pretty early on, which right. which was amazing. And I will say this, it reprinted a lot of funny stories to me. Funny by current standards, but back then it was normal. But you had Superman's first exploit, which was by Ed Hamilton and uh, Wayne Boring. And basically, Dr. Reese Kearns is discredited because of his claims 30 years earlier that Metropolis would be destroyed by a meteor. Super Baby got out of his rocket and fought a crystalline insect, and it knocked the meteor off track, and it missed Metropolis. So that was for, that was Superman's first miracle for Metropolis. And when Superman goes back and remembers these things, he basically restores Dr. Kern's reputation. And that is such an absurd story. <laughs> I mean, a little super baby getting out and kicking ass on a crystalline insect. I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I don't buy it. But I would say he probably said, super baby kill, you know, because that's how he <laughs> talked. But, you know, we also had the origin of Supergirl in that issue. Right. We also had uh, from Lois Lane number one. We had the Witch of Metropolis, where Lois inhales some weird chemicals. She turns into a hag, believes she's a witch, and <laughs> and hilarity ensues. Right, right. But, naturally, naturally. But yeah, and then you also have Jimmy Olsen being flung back into time and hanging out with Superboy, and he spends the entire story trying to explain to Superboy. I'm your best friend. I'm your best friend. I'm your best friend. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it, it was it was a, a great issue. And like you said, it sold off the hook. That spun into an entire cottage industry of annuals. Just the concept of a reprint book. Even now, a lot of the comic industry, Marvel, DC, they pump out trade paperbacks. And this is essentially an echo of these old 80-page giants. Yeah, I mean, I think 1960 is interesting in that there is this solidification of DC's Silver Age superhero pantheon as a true fighting force, the manifestation of this 80-page giant phenomenon, essentially Superman's 1960 contribution, because he, he didn't really have that much personal change or growth in 1960, but that particular packaging of his stories, of old stories, was important. Well, in that basically shoves us into the Marvel Age or the early Marvel Age. Right, or rather the pre-Marvel Age. For the first time in, in like modern era back then, you had the team-up of Stanley and Jack Kirby. I believe they had teamed up a couple times in the past, but nothing on a regular occurrence. But they took over Rawhide Kid as of number 17, right. which is 1960. Had Jack drawing most of the covers, the Western... Marvel Universe at the time, especially since our favorite, Joe Manili, had died in 1958. And that's true. Rawhide Kid was originally created by Stan Lee and Bob Brown. But when Jack Kirby came along, this was, of course, after Joe Manili was dead. They needed a new powerhouse artist that could just pump out art fast. And Jack Kirby fit the bill. And this, like you said, was their first collaboration in this time frame, on an ongoing character. That's the key point. Right. Kirby's action was fun. They couldn't get too violent because of the comics code. They couldn't show a bullet going into someone's head, but they could show him shooting a gun out of someone's hand. But Kirby could still make that look exciting enough. There was 
an Uncle Ben death origin story for the Rawhide Kid, where he vowed revenge on criminals that killed his Uncle Ben. That was used in the Spider-Man two years later. It was a fun series. I don't know if you've read those issues. They kind of played the same three or four plots over and over and over again. So it wasn't groundbreaking. But I think it got Kirby and Lee's juices squirting on each other enough where then they co-created the Marvel Universe with Fantastic Four 1 a year later. And Fantastic Four 1 we must mention was created because Martin Goodman picked up an issue of justice league. Number one, this is what history says. I I mean, I could be wrong. History's often wrong, but I've always heard he was wailing a copy of number one over his head (laughs) for the Marvel universe began because Martin Goodman wanted to have the kind of hit that DC was having. There's actually two stories there. One is that story, and you're right. That is kind of the Stan Lee version of the events. There's a Jack Kirby version of the events that he mentions in his Gary Groth interview in the early 90s that he brought the concept of superheroes to Marvel and that he generated the idea of the Fantastic Four as a continuation of his Challengers of the Unknown. So... You know, it's hard to say, did Jack Kirby generate this from the Challengers or did the Justice League as an editorial or as a publisher standpoint then push Martin Goodman to then tell his team, hey, make something like this? Or maybe it was both. It's tough to say. But most likely, for sure, in that little bit of time of 1960, 1961, there's definitely an element of bubbling creativity where these things all squirted all over everyone's faces. His family, uh, mainly his wife, pushed him to push that, especially when Stan Lee came out with a completely other story. So I believe the truth, as usual, is probably somewhere in between. It's hard to say what actually happened, but those are definitely the narratives of what happened. And uh, it's interesting to know those. I think it's important to know that. And definitely JLA number one does play a role there, as well as the Stanley Jack Kirby collaboration on a continuing character, which also starts with Rawhide Kid in 1960. Now, on the flip side of the coin in Marvel, you were talking about it earlier, the Monster Comics. Jack Kirby was drawing a lot of covers to Monster Comics at this time as well, not just Westerns. The Monster Bandwagon, inspired by a lot of 50s movies, it was a big deal. So by 1960, that was a lot of covers of these pre-Marvel era Strange Tales, Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, Journey into Mystery, with Jack Kirby covers with one nice Ditko story in each one as well. So we're seeing some fun stuff here. What do you think of those monster comics, Bill? I think they're wonderful, and I also think they were, because of the success of The Twilight Zone, you had a huge love for these kind of... Shock endings. Twisted shock endings, exactly, and involving monsters. And then this would also begat Outer Limits, which started just a little bit later. But the Outer Limits had more monsters that were, in many cases, very similar to the Marvel monsters and the monsters that were appearing in Charlton Comics, which we'll discuss a little later. Yeah, I think one of the key issues of this era, as you know, Tales to Astonish 13, 1960, The very year we're talking about, the year of our Lord, 1960. I am Groot! I am Groot, that's right. Jack Kirby did that cover of the tree monster from Planet X. It's funny because he was kind of a nondescript character at the time, just kind of a fading character. He made a few appearances, first, of course, in this issue 13 of Tales to Astonish, then later on in Hulk Annual 5, 1976. They had a lot of those monsters from 1960 make a comeback, but it wasn't until Keith Geffen, who made him cool with the Annihilation Conquest Star-Lord 2007, and that's where, you know, Rocket Raccoon and Groot and Peter Quill, Drax, they're all just getting together, having a good time, defending the universe, and that's where Groot becomes cool, and it's that coolness of Groot, started from Keith Geffen, as well as the other Guardians that then bled into Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning's 
Guardians of the Galaxy's runs, that energy, that momentum of those stories was all absorbed into the Guardians movies, which were huge. Those two movies were huge. Giffen, of course, was a big force in uh, DC in the early 80s. And he was also an artist on, with Mike Royer inking him, on the Defenders in the mid-70s. He's kind of run his gamut going back and forth with companies. And to me, he's one of the comic's greatest storytellers. Yeah, he kind of started off as somewhat of a Kirby-ish style. No, not somewhat. Total Kirby-ish. If you look at the issues of the Defenders that Mike Royer inked of his, yeah. you can hardly tell them apart. It, it right. was crazy how much they looked alike. If you check out Defenders issue 49, there's a splash page of the Hulk with the Hulk's face right in your face, craggly and thick inks. And yeah, that feels like Kirby, but it's not. Actually, the same thing with Moon Knight. There is a splash page with Moon Knight. It feels like Kirby, but it's actually Keith Geffen. Something we should talk about is 1960 Journey into Mystery 62 has a character named Hulk before there actually was the Incredible Hulk. He didn't look like the Hulk. He was just another one of these monsters that Kirby and Lee and Larry Lieber kind of would generate back then. But they used these names. Wasn't he Shaggy? Shaggy Hulk, yeah. Yeah. Hulk with hair all over. Right. And they have the name Hulk being used. And that's actually just one example. In this time, all these monsters, they would all have names that would then be used later for superhero characters. Right. Like you have a monster named Cyclops. You have another monster named Colossus. Another monster named Spider-Man. You have another monster named Scorpion. There was actually a whole list. There was one monster called Magneto. So it's a really interesting time where it's this pre-Marvel 1960 era where DC has solidified where they're at with their gallery of heroes. They are going to add a few more throughout the 60s, but they really solidify here and in marvel it's this pre-marvel pre-superhero monster but they're using names that they'd use later so it's a real interesting year where one company has a comeuppance but the other one hasn't shot their load yet if you know what i'm saying well i i know i know what you're saying but yes <laughs> but but this brings us doesn't it to charlton which was trying to do a emergence of both the superhero and the monster Right. Charlton, they were big dabblers, and they dabbled in both. That's right. And Steve Ditko was, oddly enough, at the forefront of that dabbling. Charlton, as you know, made most of their money printing music lyrics, music lyric magazines, and they wanted to keep the presses running because it was a lot cheaper to just keep them moving instead of shutting them off and shutting them back on. And so they printed various genres like war, westerns. They dabbled in a superhero this year. And what was that superhero, Bill? It would be who would later take on a DC mantle, as it were, but it would be Captain Adam. That's right. That's right. Written by Joe Gill, drawn by Steve Ditko. It was Charlton Superheroes starting this year. Ditko actually modeled the artwork for the character, the design for the character, off his idol, comic art idol, Jerry Robinson's Adam Man character that he made much earlier. And if you actually put the characters next to each other, there's some similarities. Although Captain Adam does not have a cape, he first appeared in Space Adventures 33, 1960. He was a military man who blew up in a space accident and gains radioactive power. Yes. <laughs> Actually, it's thought that he influenced Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons for Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. What do you think of that? Oh, I, I know that's, that's a fact, actually. Yeah, and I believe it wholeheartedly. Well, the funny thing was, was that they never took that character quite too far until, of course, he got to D.C. years later. But here's the funny thing. He was, in a sense, kind of like Daredevil because... He started out in a completely colorful, garish costume. And then Steve Ditko came back to Charlton after leaving Marvel and revamped him where he was mainly a blue character. Yeah, but that costume, I hated that second one. I mean, the first one yeah. I liked because he had like a Stardust trail and he kind of had this cool design. That one later where he's almost like red, white, and blue. And then the way he's kind of arching his back and has this big old smile. Yeah. I was like, whoa, this character has jumped the shark 
suddenly is what I thought. He had. And meanwhile, at that point, you had the question and you had right. several other characters that Ditko was creating for Charlton. They were fantastic. Nightshade. Remember Nightshade was there? Nightshade. Yes. So, yeah, I remember we spoke about the Charlton Heroes in one of our 1966 episodes. So dedicated uh, listeners should listen to that one because we go into that in a lot of detail. But going back to Captain Adam, his stories were really interesting. I think we think of a lot of our intergalactic or galactic heroes like Quasar and Captain Marvel. We look at them as these long galactic operas. These stories were not like that by Joe Gill. He would fight off threats to national security, spies, aliens. But it was like these one-hit wonder stories in that initial year in 1960. And he was also a very obedient servant to Dwight D. Eisenhower. Oh, yeah. That was another interesting factor to him where he was extremely patriotic and Dwight D. Eisenhower's servant in a lot of ways. It's also funny that not only did that happen, but he was also a member of the Air Force, and he was also basically just your average civil servant. Right. And he carried that over into his superhero life, which up until now, 1960, that was not real, really heard of. Yeah, I definitely think that in 1960, as compared to the later 60s, it was definitely more okay for the super character to be a servant or friend of the military industrial complex an affiliation unquestioning devotion and all that i think in the later 60s that totally changed yeah and then you have green lantern green arrow you know for that flip side that's right in fact that's the whole thing right where green lantern that's a space cop in the year of our lord 1960 by 1970, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow, where Green Lantern now questions the structure, where Green Arrow's in his ear, making him question the space cop structure and how he's actually been focusing in such a narrow bandwidth, ignoring a lot of social problems. So, yeah, it's a definitely a different type of storytelling when you compare 1960 to 1970, for example. Yeah, have you even heard of the ghetto? Sorry. I'm, I don't think I'm totally quoting, but, you know. No, that's right. In the ghetto. But, yeah, you still had Ditko, mm -hmm. still working for Charlton right. in a large capacity. Mm -hmm. And he took on two giant monster books right. that both ran at least 40 issues between the two of them. Right. And I think you might want to mention that a little bit. That's true. Charlton jumped onto the giant monster bandwagon with Conga number one, 1960, which was a comic adaptation of a movie a year before the actual movie was released in 1961, also scripted by Joe Gill and penciled by Steve Ditko. Same thing with the giant lizard book coming out of Charlton was Gorgo, and it was about a giant lizard like Godzilla. These were essentially British movies that were kind of trying to make their own versions of characters that were already famous. And Congo was about a chimp that was grown to very large monster gorilla size through a formula that the scientists found in Africa. The movie was very corny. Uh, you said you've watched it? Yes, I saw it as a kid. I haven't seen it in years. But, you know, all I can say to that is, Blimey! And uh, it has a lot less style than even the 1933 King Kong film had. Oh, yeah. No emotion whatsoever. Yeah. There's n no emotion. Conga in his costume, it just looks so bad. What's funny is in the trailer, they even mentioned King Kong. They say, you haven't seen anything like this since King Kong. So I thought that was funny that they're trying to make their own character, but they're really riding on King Kong's coattails. Exactly. As usual... It comes up bland, and you really don't want any more. Right. There you go. But of the movie, but of the comic, though, this goes along with Gorgo around this time. Although Jack Kirby was doing a lot of those covers in Marvel, it's fun looking at these Charlton issues because Steve Ditko is doing most of those covers. And you see the Steve Ditko version of these giant monsters, and it is a lot of fun. I love the artwork. And his story work is great. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. His story work, his panel sequences, the detail oh, he yeah. was putting into his Charlton 
stuff, even though he was getting paid a lot less than at Martin Goodman's company, were still amazing. He was so dedicated to the art form that when you read those stories, I mean, they're... They're they're gripping. They really are good. They're better than the movie. Way better than the movie. Oh, by far. And they lasted much longer. And they lasted much longer, yeah. I, I don't know if I've said this yet, but they both... but. Between the two of them, they lasted, I want to say, over 40 issues, and they reprinted it in the mid-60s. It's fascinating to think that while Steve Ditko was doing Conga and Gorgo comic books for Charlton, he was creating Spider-Man concurrently with doing some of these issues. So these are three characters he's working on amongst other random things. He doesn't do continuing characters very often. So you have Spider-Man, you have Doctor Strange, you have Gorgo and Kanga, which is pretty random and odd that this would be one of his continuing characters. Mr. A, it's very rare when he would actually do more than 10 issues of of the same character. Yeah, no, that's true. Spider-Man and Doctor Strange probably went to about the same number of episodes or issues as Kong and Gorgo or, or somewhere in the vicinity. So those four comic series right. were some of his longest standing characters. I think he found new concepts and new characters interesting and fascinating. So it's, it's actually not common for him to just stay on a character for a long time. And it's interesting that Gorgo and Kanga would be two out of the few ones that he did that with. That's why those issues are actually really worth reading, because this is around the time that he's creating Spider-Man, at least the visual language and the web gimmicks and uh, the paneling that would essentially set the tone and definition of what Spider-Man was and looked like. So that's really impressive that this was happening while he was doing Gorgo and Kanga. Exactly. It's kind of funny in retrospect that he did so much work for Charlton and they paid him so much less than either DC or Marvel. The volume of work he did for Charlton is probably 10 times what it was the combination of his DC and Marvel work. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. He was carrying a lot of those books. I mean, he was pounding out volume like the way Kirby did for Marvel. It was really impressive. In fact, his sci-fi books and his horror books that he did for Charlton are just really fun to look at. And he puts a lot of cinematic work into those panels, which is interesting. He wasn't doing it for the paycheck. He was doing it because he was pushing the boundaries of the art form. I did a video, a comic book historian video, on Steve Ditko as a co-creator of Marvel citing a lot of images from his Charlton 1950s days. And you see a lot of elements that he brought into the Marvel stuff. Like they had a chameleon character. They had a Norman Osborn type character. They had an Electro type character that Ditko worked on in Charlton. He brought this stuff with him to create the much more exciting and much more famous Spider-Man's Rogue Gallery. So this was a really interesting time. People should look at that. But yeah, 1960 is an interesting branch point for Steve Ditko because he's working on Charlton and Marvel at the same time until he starts devoting more time toward Marvel, which he eventually leaves. We talk about that in one of the 1966 episodes, but interesting time for sure. And this, of course, brings us to the point everybody loves in the show, at least Alex and I do, because we get to get, you know, our yayas off. But this brings us to the weekly rant. And uh, Alex... What is your rant or love or rave this week? Well, I just watched the movie Split, directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and I really was impressed. I thought it was a fantastic movie. I really loved the movie Unbreakable when that first came out. I had no idea that Split was a concurrent storyline in the same universe, and I didn't realize it was a bit of a soft sequel as well. So I knew that it was set in... Philadelphia, I I recognized that train station that he was at, but I didn't realize it was actually a sequel because Bruce Willis's character shows up at the very end and they talk about Mr. Glass and I realized, wow, this is a a universe and there's actually a new movie going to come out called Glass, which is continuing the story. And I, I was impressed. You know, usually 
movies that I watch that are some sort of superpowered something, they're dominated by special effects. And it's the special effects that then are the centerpiece of it with some story around it. You know, Avengers Infinity War and it was like that. And although I like the story, but this movie was incredible because the acting is what carried it, not special effects. There was barely any special effect. And it was the acting of the captured young woman and the multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder character uh, played by James McAvoy, who just that energy between those two and just the portrayals of the characters and the raw emotion, that's what carried the movie. And the way it climaxed at the end, wow, I just was really impressed with the way that came out. And the idea of his character, the ascension of this super villain, super powered villain, and how there is going to be a head to head with the superhero that ascended with Bruce Willis's character in Unbreakable, and how that's going to come together in the Glass movie. I am really excited to watch that. So um, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of those two movies. I'm excited to see what happens next. Hopefully it's going to run along a similar energy and it doesn't turn into the last airbender, but whatever. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's really funny, especially for those who wound up seeing the last airbender, <laughs> which it would have been called Avatar, but a certain movie came out like what two years before that named Avatar and it blew that out of the water. Well, what's funny about that is we're still waiting on that sequel. Oh yeah. Yeah, don't don't hold your breath there. <laughs> but my rant this week, Alex, since you didn't ask me because I didn't give you a chance to, is the new Doom Patrol TV series. Okay. And I don't know I don't know if you know anything about this, but and it's still a few months out, but it has a stellar cast and uh you have Brendan Fraser playing Robot Man, which is really cool, if you ask me. Oh, that's Brendan Fraser, have... huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a pick. And you have Timothy Dalton, uh, formerly a James Bond, as it were, playing the Chief. Wow, I'm definitely so watching it, that. It, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I haven't gotten a subscription yet to the DC Universe. Because I'm thinking they may compass one because we have a great podcast. Just kidding. But uh, but if you want to do it, DC, you know our, our email addresses. But but no, seriously, we're above that fray. Not really. But no, we are. Uh, but, but no, seriously, uh, I have not seen Titans yet. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I don't like Robin saying F Batman. That kind of bothered me. I don't know about you. In the trailer. I watched the first episode uh, last night. Okay, plus, what do you think? I liked it. I thought that they show that off in the trailer a lot. Really? Uh, but in the actual show, it was just like more of a little shock moment. And I, I'm not going to give too many details, but I like where the characters are going. The Starfire character got a lot of flack. A lot of people didn't like her casting and I guess her outfit. And she's black, apparently, that upset a lot of people but she was like a golden chocolate person so why would it be offensive for her to be portrayed by an african-american i mean i really don't get that do you i've listened to a lot of the arguments on both sides i don't necessarily think it was that it was african-american i just think it was the casting what i've seen from arguments made is that there are other black actresses that could have worked as well that they felt would have fit the appearance from the comic more but I will say that those people need to watch the episode because that is all explained in the actual origin of her coming to Earth. And that outfit is not meant to be Starfire's costume. And I know that there is a lot of people that want to have an orange porn star play the character. But I will say that actress does an incredible job. She is so graceful. She delivers her lines 
perfectly. And you can't see that in the photographs. Right. But when you actually watch the scenes with her in it, she really does a great job. And the way they work in the orange effect when she's using her powers, it actually works out. When you actually watch how she gets into that outfit and how she manifests in her body the way she is, when you actually see the mechanism of all that, it all makes sense. So all these people that are prejudging it and not giving it a chance, they're actually missing the point of her origin, which was actually a little bit different for the show, but in certain ways, I think, better. And also, honestly, more cost-effective. It's hard to put an entire armada and have someone flying away from an entire armada. So, And it's also not that mysterious. I, they're going for something a little more mysterious and interesting in this show, a little dark. I think people should give it a chance. I don't know. I got the app yesterday, and I was playing around with it, and it's pretty cool. They have, like, most of the animated TV series they've done all there oh, really? to stream. Like, Fantastic. Like, every Super Friends season, Man. the entire Bruce Timverse is there to watch, all as part of that subscription. So it's pretty cool. They got most of the DC animated TV shows. They even have, like, old stuff, like all the seasons of the George Reeves Superman are on there. Wow. Kirk Allen's Superman, the later 40s serial, all that's on there. They have every Christopher Reeve Superman movie. They have all the Batman, or most of the Batman movies. They have those two episodes, Legend of the Superheroes. <laughs> Just, oh my God, no. They had Dr. Savannah played by yeah. by the guy who played Ernest T. Bass and, right. and Andy Griffith. Yeah, those guys. And then Adam West is in it, but his cowl is hanging out over the cape. <laughs> it's like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember watching those as a youngster, and I loved them because in many cases, number one, it was the first time you saw a live-action Justice League. They're way better than the one that came out last year in my, you know, <laughs> humble opinion. I don't mind that but movie, you, but okay. You had, oh, I didn't hate it, but you had Adam West and uh, Burt Ward as Batman and Robin. You didn't have anyone else really of name quality. Well, you had Frank Gorshin as the Riddler, though. Yes, you did. But you also had Charlie Callis, who was a stand-up comedian and always did these weird sound effects like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? And you had him as Sinestro. And you had Howard Morris, who was also a comedian, playing Dr. Savannah. So you had all this talent in the villains and no talent at all in the heroes. So, as usual... The villains are way more entertaining than the than the heroes in those. You learn so much from this podcast, folks. We're going over so much territory. But Alex, I'm sorry, but that brings us to the end of another podcast. And I'm hoping everybody had fun in 1960 and will forgive us for like time tripping all over the place during it. I've had a blast. How about you, Al? Oh, yeah. 1960 was a huge year where the companies are moving and DC solidifying their gallery. Marvel's on the move on the cusp of greatness. Charlton's just kind of dabbling and Steve Ditko's transitioning toward going full blast at Marvel at this time. So it's a good time. And we've had a fun, wonderful time bringing it to you folks. So for Alex and I and the Comic Book Historian podcast, We'll see you next time, and as usual, aloha!